This week on the nonprofit news feed, we are talking about some data coming out of the Pew Research Center, finding that there's broad concern about the use of AI and data privacy from large companies. And we're talking about some regulator crackdown potentially on charities that reject donations, Ukraine, Airbnb giving. We're following up on a story we talked about earlier this year and some news from Kiva. Nick, how's it going? It's going great, George. I know you and I are both excited about today's episode, so looking forward to getting into it. Like you say, our first story is that the Pew Research Center, which does just phenomenal research all around, has conducted a study on American perspectives towards data privacy, highlighting growing concerns and confusion about the usage of personal data by both tech and other companies. So surveys find that most Americans are uneasy about how their information is handled by companies and the government, with two-thirds, 67%, admitting they understand little about what is done with their personal data. Additionally, this concern extends to social media, where 77% of Americans distrust social media CEOs to responsibly manage user privacy. And in relation to AI, 70% of Americans distrust companies and the private sector in general to make responsible use of AI in their products. And this study kind of underscores the national relevance of data privacy in conversations and policy and politics. And it also shows how ongoing debates about AI and discussions around online safety and social media and society have shaped the public's perception of these tools, whether it's AI, social media, or questions around data privacy and data governance. George, this are, these are pretty significant concerns being voiced by the American public and exemplify a lack of trust in both tech and other institutions, including the government. Um, it's interesting to note they break down some of these data by uh, tech companies, trust in tech companies versus trust in the government. And Americans don't trust either of them, but do trust the government actually slightly more than the tech companies. So George, you and I work in tech, we work in social impact and helping nonprofits and those audiences maximize this tech. And I think it's important that we frame this conversation in, you know, when we talk about nonprofits and, and how we're using technology and advertising and all these things, I think that the data being presented here is an important backdrop to frame how nonprofits, NGOs, and social impact leverage that technology, understanding the public's concerns and potentially responding and mitigating to it. George, what do you make of this story? I think it is really interesting to have these temperature checks of how we are feeling about data privacy, but now also AI. You're realizing that, you know, in the past we've had year over year comparisons of data privacy. So for instance, actually people's uh, ability to say that they have more control versus, you know, 2019 over their data, it's actually increased. So majority feel that, you know, the data collected, they have more control over this than, than in prior years, which is interesting. The new area that we are watching really is this public perception of AI. It's important to separate now. It's important to separate the difference between perception and usage. Make no mistake. There are 100 million folks, users on ChatGPT as weekly active users. There's 2 million developers on that platform and 
as we move into 2024, the distance between the AI applications and the applications you use every day will decrease. It'll decrease via these integrations. And so I think this concern from folks that 81% would not be comfortable with how their data are being used are validated because there is a, and has been before, but more so now, scramble to get your data because those data can be used to train AIs to be more sophisticated. These things are built on top of, you know, billions and trillions of parameters of, of data. You see what Elon Musk has done by putting up his firewalls over at X, formerly Twitter, so that they have unique and exclusive access to that firehose of data that they can then build what they're launching Grok on top of. This access to data, your data as a user, is definitely in high demand. And so, you know, 81% of folks uh, would not be comfortable with, they say, how <laughs> companies are, are using it. 80% believe they're going to be, you know, used not as originally intended, which probably pretty accurate because it's hard to tell what the second order use cases of a large language model built on your data is going to be used for. However, there, there is a ray of, of sunshine and hope in here, I'd say, with regard to 62% saying that it could make people's lives easier. I think it's important for nonprofits to be part of this conversation. I don't think you should be, at a nonprofit, a passive passenger on the AI train, going wherever it will lead as it is, again, integrated into every application that you use, but rather intentionally understand it, advocate for it, look out for the folks that are frankly going to be disenfranchised by the bias inherent in these systems, but don't block or ban it. I think you need to understand it. George, I think that that's absolutely the right approach. This isn't something, this is a wave that's coming that you can't ignore. And swimming against it is only going to get you but so far just because of the the size of the momentum here. You talked about ChatGPT having hundreds of millions of users, millions of developers working on these apps. It's going to change so much. I think that the American public's concerns about this is validated by other concerns around tech, right? We constantly hear about Elon Musk's antics in the press. The Silicon Valley mantra of move fast and break things has resulted in real harm and has changed society. Silicon Valley does not have a great track record necessarily in putting public safety ahead of rolling out new technologies very quickly. And I think that those concerns are justified. But I think that nonprofits can't afford to not be in the in that conversation, right? If you're a community organization, you're a big NGO, this technology are going to impact you as a fundraiser, impact you as a marketer, impact you as a nonprofit HR operations person, right? What is your company's internal AI use policy, it's going to impact the beneficiaries of whatever nonprofit sector you're in. AI is in healthcare. Um, AI is in XYZ sector. It's coming. And I think it's important that nonprofits understand that and can help 
bridge that divide, right? That's what we try to do at Whole Whale, um, bridge the divide between the tech and nonprofit worlds. And we, we, both those worlds need to be in conversation because these technologies are going to affect daily lives. So I think that's a great way of framing this conversation. There was an interesting article that came out in, in the Washington Post, and I, I kind of wrote a response to it. But essentially, the the Post was writing, you know, the topic on this is how AI image generators see the world, and it then went about using a what I would say is a tier, probably tier two, tier three level image generator called Stable Diffusion to create some like horribly biased, uh, horribly biased images. And I think their point is like, look how terrible this thing is. You know, it'll, there are questions raised in it ultimately, but you know, it's showing you, Hey, give me a picture of toys in Iraq. And it gives you like little toys with guns in it, according to the stable diffusion use versus when you use a, a new tool like Dolly three by OpenAI. AI, uh, you know, it gives you a, you know, multicultural, very, uh, very friendly type of image. Uh, as a result, just showing you these tools are evolving very quickly. And ultimately, I think even though it does raise certain points about, you know, how they're playing whack-a-mole responding to what people pay the most attention to being like, look, I got to do something weird. The The parallel here is that it wouldn't be a news article. If I were to say, frankly, the, you know, there's a way that Google is teaching our kids how to make poison from apples. Literally, all you have to do is, can you make poison from apple seeds? And then, by the way, yeah, you can extract cyanide from enough apple seeds. And suddenly you've got a sensational story about how Google is teaching us. What we realized ultimately with Google as we normalize it as a society is that our understanding of if you search for weird, terrible things, you're going to get weird, terrible results the search has become a bigger reflection on the person searching and their intent than the fact that you have access to that information in the same way that something trained on the entire internet's corpus, yeah, can say weird stuff. It absolutely can. And as we get normalized, same thing for images, to how these tools work, the type of prompt and the type of result is we, and will become a bigger reflection on the person who did that request. But we have to build that muscle. And we have to be intentional about how we use it. So, yeah. Thanks, Nick. Um, I always love talking about these topics, but what else do we have in the news? Yeah, for sure. Our next story is a fascinating one, and it comes from The Guardian, and it's highlighting a controversial opinion. Um, and it cites Orlando Frazier, who was the head of England, the country's charity commission, who is criticizing charities for rejecting donations on moral grounds instead urging them to consider the impact on service services being provided to beneficiaries. Um, he emphasized that decisions to refuse funds, quote, should not be based on trustees' personal biases, but on substantial justifications and misgrowing concerns about accepting unethical donations. So this stance has sparked some debate um, uh, amongst uh, folks in the philanthropic center. Um, about the balance of of ethical funding, but also positive benefits to beneficiaries. And this is kind of an interesting turn in the narrative that you and I have talked about on this podcast before of what happens with if you're a charity doing good work and the Sackler family responsible for the opioid crisis wants to donate tens, hundreds of millions of dollars to your institution, right? Uh, 
George, I have thoughts. I'm going to let you say your thoughts <laughs> first because I know that end, uh, you think Isn't this just an ends justify the means? Isn't this just saying go cash the check? You know, because the good you'll do will outweigh the bad done by the generation of that content. I find that anybody who follows that to its narrative conclusion ends up in a very, very dark place with many unintended consequences. Uh, and in, in social impact work, the, the process is part of the destination. That journey you take in helping stakeholders and creating the entire ecosystem and being aware of how you operate in it. Uh, is all part of what you do in the outcomes. It can't be a by any means necessary ends justify the means approach. And now I will say, if you were to roll back the clock on me into my early 20s, I would actually have found a lot of merit in this type of argument. Cash the check, go do good. Who cares where it came from? Experience has taught me enough times that it comes around. And, and also what's more, it's important to value what you sell. Yeah. Nonprofits sell something. They sell the ability to turn money into meaning. But make no mistake that that cause washing has and is used by the folks that donate at that level, that put their name on that building, that buy themselves back into the good graces, that justify the next generation of I can do whatever I want to make money and extort resources, be them human or otherwise, because I can just write a check at the end of the day and I'll be a socially accepted hero. And I think you have to understand how that ecosystem works. Um, you gotta be in the game long enough to see that. So that's, that's the hot take on my side. George, I agree with you. Nonprofits don't <laughs> operate <shocker>. in isolation. <laughs> shocker. <It's a> joke. <laughs> but nonprofits don't operate in isolation. Their goal is to provide benefit in some way, advocacy to beneficiaries, people in their audience, potentially vulnerable people. Let's take the Sackler family, for example, right? Which largely funded the opioid crisis in America and knowingly. donated to nonprofits knowingly. knowingly, knowingly, and also donated to registered 501c3 charities that advocated for pain relief advocacy that helped seed the foundations for the American opioid crisis. That does not make, <laughs> one right does not justify another wrong, right? Soccer is a great thing, but that doesn't mean that FIFA should be holding the 2030 World Cup in Saudi Arabia, which jails people for posting things on Twitter, um, which Saudi Arabia happens to be a part of. That is not, acceptable, right? Rights don't exist in isolation. Human rights don't exist in isolation. Good and bad don't exist in isolation. Um, you can't turn around and say, we're doing this good for these people if you are enabling something bad, probably worse, to happen to these people by elevating the name of Sackler. And George, I'm in New York. I go into the museums. Every single one of these museums has something named after that yeah. family. And Correct. they are directly responsible for the deaths of how many thousands of Americans. And quite frankly, that's unacceptable. So I strongly, <laughs> I have a strong problem with this stance. And I think that uh, this uh, head of England's charity commission um, should do the charitable thing and resign. Oh, Colin Kellinger. Um, I, I, I hope that 
it wouldn't be cancellation, but rather comprehension of the the broader ecosystem and the unintended consequences uh, of that played out. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. I want to take us into our next story. And this is a really interesting one. This one comes from a blog called Alliance Magazine. And this is a follow-up on a story that we've talked about almost a year ago at this point, George. We're about uh, like a year and a half, a year and two thirds into the war in Ukraine. Um, approximately this time last year, we talked about an initiative um, called the Ukraine Airbnb Initiative, which kind of started as a devolved, a democratized way to help Ukrainians in need in the face of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. And the idea is fairly simple. It was that people would rent Airbnb properties, of course, not going to said properties because they were in a war zone. And essentially, the practice of doing that would be equated to a, a, a money transfer that could then go directly to people affected. Um, this is seen as an alternative vehicle to nonprofits, right? This goes We'll talk about this a bit, um, but um, this is, this directly contributed to about 15 million uh, pounds, dollars, essentially, to property owners in just one week at the height of this initiative. Airbnb ended up waiving its own fees to enable this to happen, but the program has faced criticism for essentially potentially, I should say, excluding the neediest people in times of conflict, right? This direct transfer of money is going to Airbnb hosts. And people say Airbnb hosts may not be the best distributor of the most essential, most important goods and services needed by a population under siege. And there's a lot to unpack here, but George, what's your initial reaction to this story? So wait a minute, you're telling me that giving out international aid directly to property owners with enough excess property to rent it out on Airbnb because they have the means to do that shouldn't be receiving millions of dollars of international aid to help vulnerable populations because in an effect, you are essentially signaling that you're not vulnerable because you've got that extra resource. I'm shocked, shocked to find gambling going on at this casino. That's a deep cut. For, that's a I take Casablanca it you're not a cut. fan. <laughs> Frankly, that's a Casablanca cut, and I'm leaving it in because those that know, know. Um, yeah, no, I'm not a fan of disintermediated giving. Disintermediated giving, quick sidebar here, is essentially the process of making the charitable donations by cutting out the, quote, middlemen of, of nonprofits or structured institutions and instead directly to the beneficiaries bypassing those those traditional structures. And you look no further than organizations like Give Directly, which have done very well, very well by that uh, narrative. And also, of course, GoFundMe, GoFundMe.org, uh, which uh, has uh, probably the largest platform for individuals requesting uh, giving. And so, you know, this method can increase the efficiency of funds in narrow, narrow, use cases. Uh, but they clearly miss in terms of, you know, questions raised about accountability or ethical considerations, um, the lack of support services that, you know, charities provide simply uh, giving 
you know, direct money to, let's say, somebody with substance abuse might not be the best deployment of funds. Clearly, you need infrastructure, you need supports offered by uh, established organizations to do that. So it can't be a, in every case. And I think the number of cases we potentially apply this uh, hope that giving direct money is uh, is overused in many areas and something that I'm paying attention to. And I think the sector should pay attention to uh, as well with regard to the issues with disintermediated <laughs> disintermediated giving. No, for sure. George, I'll offer a counterpoint to that. I happen to agree with you in this case, but critics may say, right, that philanthropy is something of an old guard, highly institutionalized. Um, the largest players are 100-year-old organizations that operate like corporate philanthropies. Think the Ford Foundation, which has a beautiful 20-story building in midtown Manhattan. Um, should those institutions be the vanguard of deciding who and what gets money. And I think in the context of, we talked a little bit about this last week, in the context of, let's say, international development in Africa, um, of course, many organizations doing many important and great things, but there's also been criticism of international development, of not meeting the needs of individual people, the white savior complex, right? NGOs coming into a place and imposing solutions on communities. And in some way, I think that people who participate in the direct transfer of funds see that as a way to circumvent kind of the institutionalized form of charitable giving in a way that would enable the beneficiaries to directly benefit themselves from those funds. I think that that is the, the philosophical framework from which a lot of people who view these as viable vehicles for donations would ascribe to. Um, and we're, we're going to talk about that a little bit more in our next story. But I do think your point that in this context, right, this specific giving, the Airbnb initiative, right, is might seem like a kind of cool, innovative way to give money directly to Ukrainians in a system, by the way, in which like banking has been interrupted. Um, there's unstable, you know, infrastructure to provide these funds, and it can be complicated to to move resources to to parts of a, a country under siege. I do also believe, however, that this is deeply inefficient, right? There needs to be emergency aid and Airbnb homeowners, people who are renting out rooms on Airbnb, are probably not the most efficient allocators of that aid. And I think this goes back to our first story in which we talked about trust, trust in tech, right? Um, you're placing a lot of trust in, in Airbnb to facilitate donations, but how can charities regain public trust um, so people donate to organizations that can efficiently help people beyond uh, kind of donating based on specific narratives they might see on a GoFundMe, et cetera. Um, interesting article that was linked to from the article in the show notes is a, uh, a paper in the Journal of Economic Behavior and Organization that finds that on... Uh, crowdsource giving platforms, more attractive, lighter skinned and less obese borrowers are favored, right? Do this completely democratizing charity make sense? Is that even fair? And I think that research shows it may not be in certain ways. Perhaps it is in another. 
I think it's a complicated dimension, but I think that this story really centers um, some interesting questions. To pull away, what is happening is that it emotionally feels good to go through, select and choose who I would potentially want to give money to, and then have that knowledge that that money got passed through. But by the way, there were still some other fees taken out of the processing of money through Airbnb. But even if we're talking about going through GoFundMe, you know, it feels good. And I think a lot of times for nonprofits, you're selling a story, you're opening up potential avenues of, of choice of where your money should go is difficult for some organizations. But if you're able to harness and look at why these platforms are succeeding, why at a high level, a donor is choosing to have this experience of exchanging money for meaning in the elements of like, oh, I feel like it went directly to this point. You know, it is something that I think a lot of nonprofit fundraisers already know. And just to bring us into our next story, Kiva is probably one of the longest running, uh, you know, microfinance organizations in the game, giving you that ability to choose and to send out. So, so Nick, can you uh, let us know what is, what is Kiva up to these days as they reimagine what it, uh, what they can do in the coming years? Yeah, so Kiva has announced kind of an evolution in its approach. This was reported by Next Billion, and Kiva has quote a bold new impact strategy, um, refining its approach, uh, refining its approach to development. So since its inception in 2005, Kiva has been one of the world's, as you said, first crowds crowdfunding platforms and has enabled over 2.2 million lenders to fund over 2 billion in loans to more than 5 million entrepreneurs globally. This is that democratic giving, enabling people directly um, via low, no interest loans in developing contexts to be able to start and work on their own business. And key to its strategy is the formation of deep values line partnerships with hundreds of organizations in nearly 100 countries um, working on a global scale. Kiva is a ginormous organization um, and innovating for social underwriting in the U.S., partnerships with community organizations and establishment of capital for larger loans have been instrumental in extending support to underserved entrepreneurs, including refugees. So Kiva is continuing to advance via additional like loan models, ways of democratically getting people, uh, getting money and financing directly to entrepreneurs and individuals um, in development contexts. So this is, I think, quite frankly, George, an example of kind of the, on the flip side, the, the positive example of a way in which potentially that somewhat, again, this is operated by a, a nonprofit, so it's a little bit different than uh, just the throwing money at Airbnb, but um, a little bit of that disintermediated uh, model of providing uh, charitable donations do directly to individuals in need, of course, facilitated by Kiva. So, yeah, it adds some color so to the, the nuance the conversation. here I that I think it's really important, interesting. right? You have to look at the, the nuance here, which is important for Kiva, which is the strategy that they employ is not a top down, but a layered approach, which involves the formation of deep values aligned partnerships with like 600 organizations in 95 countries. What does that look like? It means that I'm not just having this like blank online form where it says, submit some information and you get money because you could accidentally be harming a community like they note in the 
Ukraine Airbnb initiative where it's actually causing some inflation in local goods because of the way the money is being deployed. So managing to make sure you're not actually doing a net negative to a community is, you know, important. Forget, you know, like the step one is do no harm. So their approach of monitoring, working with local partners that understand the community and how these funds and liquidity could be deployed, that's the right way to do it. They've been doing it for over a decade. They're going to hopefully continue on for far longer. So it's inception since 2005. Um, uh, hopefully they have a long road ahead of them and, and continue to learn and build. Absolutely. Check them out. Well, well worth reading about. And also really, really fantastic documentation and a presentation of things like their their theory of change, how they think about and measure impact, like, like very, very, very well done um, and thought out. All right, George, how about a feel-good story? Yeah, what do we got? All right, this is from NBC5, Dallas-Fort Worth, and it's about the charity Interfaith Family Services, which under the guidance of Felicia Nelson um, is dedicated to assisting single-parent families facing homelessness, and they are preparing for the holiday season by seeking donations and volunteers for their annual Christmas store where families can select holiday items. This nonprofit has an incredible success rate. Um, the organization uh, places 97% of families it works with um, into full-time employment and 94% uh, moving into permanent housing after the program. So if you're looking for a great organization with a strong record, uh, needing your help this holiday season, uh, check them out. Interfaith Family Services in Dallas-Fort Worth. Yeah. And their focus on this was part of a larger randomactsofkindness.org initiative with World Kindness Day, which uh, just passed. And I think, you know, having these days of celebration to find organizations and help uh, companies jump into local companies, help in to help local communities is a great way to celebrate random acts of kindness. So check them out as well. Randomactsofkindness.org. Uh, interesting group building a culture of change. Nick, I do have a question, though, for you. It is charity event season, so I have a question. What air should charity events use to fill those balloons that are all over event spaces? Oh, gosh. What should they use? Uh, billion air. Billionaire. There you go. Billion, billionaire. There you go. Break it in. Um, yeah. Reminder, ask more from people who have more. Hopefully your end of year campaigns are going well and you're getting ready for Giving Tuesday this year. Nick, thanks for joining us. Thanks, George.